together where we open God's word and consider. And I know before we left, we were in Acts, but we're going to take weeks uh, to turn our attention to and just enjoy the rich truths that we receive out of Isaiah chapter 55. So I'm going to ask you to join me in Isaiah chapter 55, and I will read the first portion of that chapter and then pray, and we'll consider a few things out of it this morning and pray that God will really minister to our hearts through it. Listen as I read God's word here in um, Isaiah 55. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. Delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, a nation shall, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Let's pray. Lord God, as we take this time this morning to give attention to your word, I just ask, oh God, that you would be pleased for your glory and for your name's sake to bless the preaching of your word, that you would help me to deliver this in a way that is clear and simple and understandable uh, for everyone that you've brought here, that you would remind us of the rich privileges that we have in Christ, as well as the high calling to walk in Him. Grant us this day, Lord, that we would worship You in the hearing of the Word. In Jesus' name, amen. When I take up this passage, now here Isaiah is, is full of prophecies to, at a different time and at a different age, and at times it's directed to Israel, and at times it's directed to other people and other nations. But as we take this up, this is a passage that is often used in a gospel context. And it's wonderful to see that, but one of the things that we don't notice and that I want us to, to pick up on today are, are key things that are laced within this. Here, here we have what I could say is very strongly a call. There is a call to come, correct? And even if you read it, it says, come everyone. And, and people like that idea, the, the, the concept of a general call. But the reality is, and, and I want us to grasp this if, by listening just a little closer to the words, because this is something that plagued me for seasons of my life and potentially can plague you. We see the words that we like to see. We remember the things that we, we like to hear, and, and we don't really take it all in, and I'm, I'm hoping today that we can take it in a little bit deeper and a little bit broader than we have before. I'm so thankful that the gospel call goes out uh, and it's indiscriminate of nations. It's indiscriminate to, of what people call race and class and education and all of the other compartments and barriers that men put out there. It has nothing to do with those things. It, is, it was, even as on the day of Pentecost, to those who were near, to those who would then later be their children, to those who are far off. But Jesus would often, even in the midst of his teaching, when he was done with saying something, and I've drawn your attention to this in the past, he would say this, he who has ears, let him hear. Which would seem like an odd thing to say. Because who among them were earless? But Jesus, when he was saying that, he was talking about something deeper than this oddly fashioned flesh 
that is attached to the side of our heads, wasn't he? He was saying, do you have the enablement by the Spirit of God to lay hold of what's being said? Has he dug for you ears that will hear? And what we often miss in this, and I do want to, to, to draw your attention to this, is it says this, come everyone, but let me finish the phrase, come everyone who thirsts. Now, that's, that's an important distinction. We, we see a similar idea as we move to the New Testament. And people will often and beautifully reference that passage where Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11, those beautiful words in Matthew eleven twenty eight, come to me. And we could even say, come to me all. But Jesus isn't done there. Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden. And I don't want us to miss something in this. In these calls that go out indiscriminately to everybody who might listen, not everyone who's listening is thirsty. Not everyone who's listening senses that they are weary and heavy laden. There are some who think they've got it made. There are some who think they've found the answers to life. They, and so what, what I want us to see in this, that within this call, there is an awareness of, of a sense of need. This, this call is not to everybody who thinks he's good. In a sense, we could, we, I could even bring in other passages, you know, the call doesn't go out to the righteous, but to sinners. Because Jesus came to call sinners to repentance. Now, now the, the unique sarcasm laced within that is who's righteous? There is none righteous, no, not one. But still, there were some there who were saying, why does Jesus eat with sinners? And what they didn't realize is among those Pharisees who would attack Jesus in that way, Jesus also went and ate in their homes. And when he ate in their homes, he was also eating with sinners. But their thought was, we are righteous. We have need of nothing. We are good. There has to be this sense of need. And so that's why we say this. When we go out to preach the gospel, we, we recognize God has to give the people that we speak to a sense of need. He's got to give them an emptiness. And I, I will tell you this. There are some, because of the way that life is in this world, that do feel a practical emptiness a loss and hopelessness, but they all think that the answer is in more of this world, more of these things. The scriptures also tell us this, um, as he unpacks this here, and, and I want us to see this, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Now, I love when the scriptures do that and say things that, that cause you to say, what? Come on. You're saying, come, buy, and eat. But then you're saying, let the person who has no money come buy. Now, do the math on that for a little bit. I know we're not all, you know, accountants. But nonetheless, usually we figure, if you got nothing, how much do you end up buying? Nothing. But Jesus is talking about something that, that would cause people to say, what is going on here? What is he talking about? How can I come and buy with no money? This makes no sense. And he says, and then he, he makes it even broader and says, why do you spend your money 
for that which is not bread and for your labor for that which does not satisfy. He had said also earlier, buy wine, milk, without money and without price. This is to get them thinking, where can I go to do this? I will tell you this. You're not going to find this in, in, in the advertisements, even in whatever, Black Monday or whatever they call these, these special purchasing days that people do. I've yet to see an advertisement that says, come and buy without money. Come and get what you want and there's no price. Now, were that to happen practically and physically, what, what would you expect the, the lines to be like outside of that store? Yeah, it'd probably be you'd have some mad people there the night before with tents and parkas stay in the night because this is an opportunity that just seems too good to be true and we want to get in on it. But what's interesting is as this unfolds, it's not something that people understand. In the end, what he's not talking about is water and wine, and milk. Those are things that are meant to symbolize the basic sustenances and the basic enjoyments, the basic necessities, the basic nourishments that they needed. And he's basically saying, listen, all those things that give you what you need, and then even beyond that, supply you with what you enjoy, all of that... What really brings nourishment, what really brings delight, I'm going to provide it for you at no cost to you at all. But I ask you this, brothers and sisters, does everyone understand that sense of need? Listen, let me tell you what it says and, and take you over briefly to Revelation chapter 3, verse 17. In Revelation chapter 3, there is a, a, a church there and the people who are attending, I'll simply call them attenders, uh, they're viewing the world from an entirely self-serving materialistic perspective. And if you were to ask them, how are you doing? Their answers are going to be based on their job, their possessions, their finances, their family. It, it, it's all going to be related to those things. And it says here, uh, uh, with regard to their own testimony of themselves in Revelation 3, 17. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. Now, someone who says, I need nothing. Are they thirsty? Are they hungry? Are they weary and heavy laden? They're saying, I got it all. I got all that I need, all that I want, all that everybody wants. They see I've got it. And, but what does the scripture say about these people who, whose self-testimony is, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing? The scripture says, not realizing that you are wretched pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. He piled up the words there. I don't know if you saw that. Theirs was, I need nothing. And he basically stripped them of everything that they think they had and said, you have nothing. Oh yeah? Look at my bank balance. You got nothing. Look at my clothes. You got nothing. Look at my car. Look at, look at this. Look at. You've got nothing. Do you not understand it? All of these things are not the things that matter. They're not the things of significance. He goes on and says these unique words also there in Revelation 3. I counsel to you. To buy from me gold refined by fire. 
so that you may be rich. And white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And, and so, wait a second, he just said that they were poor and now he's counseling them to buy. Now, is he really wanting them to buy white clothes instead of whatever colorful clothes they're wearing? Is he really wanting them to buy gold? The whole point of these passages is simply this. Valuing is not the thing that is to be valued. And you think because you have these things that you don't have needs, but you do have great, great needs. Jesus says these words in Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be fed. Now, that's a little different, isn't it? Hunger and thirst for righteousness. No, I, I, I hunger and thirst for, for bread. I hunger and... Well, no, you're missing. I thirst for water. Well, the scriptures are giving a, a different sense. And the world is often trying to fill themselves. And at times they do fill themselves with the things of this world. And they bring momentary senses of satisfaction. Momentary senses. But again, you, you eat a, 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 an abundance of food at a Thanksgiving meal such that you have to let out a notch on your belt when you're done. Will you eat again the next day? Will you eat again for the rest of the year? It, 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 it fills you in that moment, but then it ebbs away. And you got to fill it again, and you got to fill it again. Uh, one of the things that, uh, oh, let me just briefly draw your attention over to uh, uh, Psalm 73. Oh, in Psalm 73, the psalmist is, is, is struggling here with, with this sense it says this, he's looking around and he's looking at his circumstances and, and, and his simple personal assessment is, my life is really hard. And right now, things are not pleasant. And yet I look at these wicked people, they're doing great. They're, they're absolutely loving life. You know, I'm over here in misery and they're over there in revelry. What's happening? This is the struggle that was going on in his mind. And it says, he explains it like this. In verse 3 of 73, he says, For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now listen, and I say this because it's important. There is, there's a sense in which there, there is, is a, a, a call to come to God, to come to Christ, and find in Him that nourishment, that satisfaction, that delight, that, that truly abides and sustains. But listen, I know many of us who are here, by the grace of God, have already come. So someone would say, well, why are we looking at what is essentially seemingly a gospel-focused passage when most of us, by the grace of God, are in Christ? Here's why, brothers and sisters. You still live in this world. The passions of the flesh still wage war within you. From time to time, you can look at others and be envious what they have why why do they have such joys why do they have such delights you know you what you you may hear stories of of uh, uh, some unbeliever who owns the company and he and his family went on a trip and they spent uh they went to Paris and then to Nice in the south of France, and they had all these wonderful times and experiences, and you may be thinking, wait a second, why do they get all of that travel and all of that experience and all of that cuisine and all of that family enjoyment? Why are they getting that? They don't deserve it. 
And usually we don't stop at why are they getting it. We go a little bit further. Why am I not getting that? How come them, not me? I also want, I also should, and sometimes we dare to go so far as to say, I also deserve. And we know that that's ultimately not the case. We are so thankful when we rightly understand the scriptures that God does not give us what we deserve. And again, it was yesterday, and, I, and, and we want to make sure never to make it trite, but I was speaking with a man who's a neighbor of mine, and, and you know, I said, you know, how have you been in the last month that I haven't seen you? And he said to me, I'm doing better than I deserve. And I said, amen, brother, aren't we all? And, and so, just, just in the sense of this, he, he's feeling this, je uh, this jealousness of them. And then it says this in verse 4. For they have no pangs until death. It's like every day is good until they're gone. And then the second half of verse 4, and I have to give a little correction to the King James here. Sorry, brothers. Um, it says, their strength is firm. But if I give you the, the uh, and that's because it, that, the, it's influenced by the Septuagint that says they're solid. The Hebrew there really simply says this, their bodies are fat. Now, now we don't take that very complimentary when, when, if somebody tells us that. You know. But there are places overseas, it, it's, it's a common thing in India uh, if, if somebody feels, you know, in places where there is poverty and malnourishment and struggles to be uh, told, hey, you know, you're looking, uh, you're looking nice and fat. It's a compliment. It means you're looking prosperous. Uh, uh, the, 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 the literal sense here is that, that their bodies are fat or their bodies are plenteous, however you want to picture that. Uh, but, but the sense is, they got it all. They really do. And, and they're just absolutely enjoying, absolutely indulging. They got, you know, they don't seem to be facing problems. And I don't know if they ever will until they die. That's the concern of the psalmist here. That's the struggle of the psalmist. And he goes on and, and, he, and he speaks in verse 5. They are not in trouble as others. And again, I, if, if I had the opportunity, I, I, I would counsel this dear individual and say, you don't know what's going on behind closed doors in their house. You don't see them when the lights are off and they're crying into their pillow necessarily. You know, we've got a way of always thinking others have it great and we alone have misery. Well... They're not in trouble as others. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Verse 7, their eyes swell out through fatness. Their heart overflows with follies. He's just speaking with such jealousness of them. He says in verse 12, behold, these are the wicked always at ease. They increase in riches. And the temptation is to then say, all in vain I've kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. What's the point in doing what's right and honoring God when I'm not getting anything out of it? They're living against God and they're getting everything. In other words, by a worldly assessment, they are wicked and blessed. I am striving for holiness and seemingly cursed, afflicted at every turn. What do we do? How do I handle this? And of course, those who know this passage in Psalm 73, he does come to this and says in verse 15, uh, if I had said I will speak thus, means it was, it was moving around in his head and in his heart, but he was trying his best to keep it from coming out of his mouth because he understood if I had done that, I would betray the children of my generation. And verse 16, but I thought, how to understand this? 
How can I understand the ways of God? That my way is not, my path is not easy. My, my path isn't full of pleasantries. My path is really tough. And yet their path, I mean, it's just full of skittles and rainbows. Everything on their path just seems so good. And so maybe you're tempted to say, I want to switch paths. And he says, you know, it's just hard to figure it out. And here's, here's the reality. We're going to find out later in Isaiah 55, you better stop trying to find it out. Because you can't. His ways aren't your ways. And so you keep trying to figure out what all he's doing and why he's doing it like that. You know, there's a phrase that people say, you know, they'll say, listen, you just got to learn to let God be God. And I remind you, yeah, show me the person who can stop God from being God. It's not, it's not a matter of letting him. He, he is God. He remains God. He is the one who decrees the details and the destiny of all men. And he is all wise. And he makes no mistakes. And so remember, when you complain, what are you saying? What he has purposed for me is flawed. He has done wrong. And I know most of us will never come to the point where we would actually phrase those words that he has done wrong. But for those of you who read through Job, Job started out so solidly, but as time goes by, he begins to say, yeah, wish God would give me a chance to give a, give a little talk to him. To stand before him. Because then he would understand he has denied me my right. And even young Elihu comes in later and says, and I'm paraphrasing here. He says, uh-uh. No, no, no. You, whenever you say he's denied you your right, you are adding to your iniquity. You're multiplying your, your, your sins because God has not denied you your right. Further, when, when, we, uh, we, when we begin to unpack this, he says this, listen. Until, verse 17, until I went into the sanctuary of God and I discerned their end. And I say this not flippantly. The path they're on that's so wide and seemingly uh, uh, filled with prizes at every step of the way. Do you know where that path ends? That path drops them into the lake of fire and torment for all eternity. So, so they get what, what the opening psalm I read today, they get a hand breadth which was a way of measuring, they get but a small measurement of prizes and pleasures and then an absolute eternity of torment. And I ask you this, brothers and sisters, is not a handbreadth of torment nothing compared to what God has prepared for those who love him? And so we say what? You know what, if, if, I would, if I am to walk through the fire, then by the grace of God, I will walk through the fire. If I'm to walk through the thorn bushes, I'll walk through the thorn bushes. Yeah, but, but your legs will be cut up. But if I have to walk the gauntlet, if I have to walk, stand before the firing range, if I have to walk into the arena to face the wild animals, as many of our brothers and sisters in Christ did in days gone by, we would say what? Even if the lion tears our body to pieces, we will be raised immortal, imperishable, undefiled. That, that we, we, we begin to realize this is not what matters.
This is not the, this is not the thing that is significant. This is not the thing that's going to own me. Eli is, and his sons are told this in uh, 1 Samuel 2, verse 29. It says, why do you scorn my sacrifices and offerings that I commanded you for my dwelling? And honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts. A lot of people, even in the context of supposed Christian living and Christian walking, it's still not about God. It's not about His glory. It's not about any form of genuine sacrifice and self-denial. It's, I'm ready to serve if it satisfies me. I'm ready to give a little if I'm going to get a lot. And that's the, that's the sense that people have. And not, not grasping even the warning that Jesus gives in Matthew 13, 22, where it says, speaking of what was sown among the thorns, it says, well, what was sown among the thorns is this. The one who hears the, hears the word, but listen, the cares of the world. What are the cares of this world? What I will eat, what I will drink, what I will wear, where I will live, what I will drive, on and on and on. You can list it. You know what the cares of the world are. They're all around us. They're promoted on every commercial. But the cares of this world, it says, and the deceitfulness of riches choke out the word and it proves unfruitful. Now, the heartbreaking thing about these individuals is they may stay in the social community of the church. But they're unfruitful. That's why we have that warning at times. Look, narrow is the way. Few are those who will find it. In the end, there's going to be many who say. Many. And I'm always shocked by that word that Jesus says in Matthew 7. Many who say, Lord, Lord. And he's going to ultimately say, depart from me. I never knew you. Oh, God, help us to be those who are thirsty, who have truly come in that and, and continue to walk with you in that. There is such a, an important spiritual sense that we've got to get in our minds. In Luke chapter 12, God's word speaks of this individual as Jesus gives this parable. The man who says, oh, I've got so much, I don't even have place to store it. I'm going to tear down my barns. And build bigger ones to store my crops. Larger ones. And, and it says in verse 19. And I will say to my soul. Soul? This is what the guy is saying to himself. Soul? You have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax. Eat. Drink. And be merry. Does that person I ask you. Come to me, all those who thirst. Come to me, everyone who thirsts. Does this person thirst? No. God has to give us a sense of the emptiness of all these things. And a sense that even if we got them all, we'd still be empty. See, there's still many in the world who, who have a sense of emptiness. But they think if they had these things of the world, then they would be filled. We need more than that. We, we need the sense that um, even if we had everything the world has to offer, there's no real satisfaction in that. There's no real value in that. Think of that rich young man, rich young ruler that Jesus said, sell everything you have and come follow me. Think about that. Jesus, the Son of God, told him, come follow me and you will have eternal life. I mean, how much more of a glorious invitation could anyone ever get? And what did he do? He went away, grieving because he had much. Soul, you have all these things. But listen, verse 20 of Luke 12, God said to him, now listen clearly, fool, 
That's a strong language, isn't it? Not something that we oft want to be called or to call one another. Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you've prepared, whose will they be? Then he goes on to say this. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. He's given a redirect here. Wanting us to sense there's something different that's going on. Okay, the, the things we're to thirst for, the things we're, the, the manner in which we're to buy and all this, it's not about the things of this world. It's something deeper. Do the scriptures unpack the spiritual sense of food and drink a little bit more in other places? Indeed, they do. In John chapter 6, when Jesus, when they come to... Uh, the disciples come back having bought food, and they're ready to give Jesus food, and, and he doesn't need it at that point. It says this, in, or, or no, that's John chapter 4, and we'll get there in a moment. But John chapter 6 said this, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. Again, I wanted to, want you to note that, which the Son of Man will give you. Where do you get it from? Jesus. From nowhere else. And it's not the things of this world, but the things that are eternal, because all the things of this world fade away, they pass away. At uh, well, with that woman, he told that after asking her to give him water, he said this, if you knew the gift of God and who it was, that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask me, you would ask him, and he would have given you living water. And how did she understand that? Jesus further explains, and, and if you have this water, you will never thirst again. And what was water? Do you remember in John 4? I have coming out to this well all the time and drinking water. If you got some magical water, that means I don't have to keep doing all the work. This water, I don't have to. Again, her want was to satisfy the flesh. And Jesus was telling her spiritual things. And she was still valuing the worldly things. And she needed to get over that. And Jesus would, would begin to help her. He said, verse 13, everyone who drinks of this will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. Oh, give me this water, she says. Even it's interesting because if you jump forward and see in John chapter 6, verse 35, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So who comes to him? Those who hunger and thirst because they know in him alone it will be satisfied. But I also find the phrase interesting if you listen closely. I'm the bread of life. You come, you will not hunger and not thirst. I've yet to find bread that satisfies thirst. Right? Why, why does he say he's the bread of life and then it, it, it deals with hunger and it deals with thirst? That does not make sense from a dietitian's perspective. And that's good when your brain says, how am I going to get drink from bread? The answer is what? You're not. It's not about bread. It's not about taking and then literally eating Jesus and getting these things. Sadly, some have so twisted these notions that they even try to push that craziness into the Lord's Supper or Eucharist. That some, here, have a little eat. Have a little eat of Jesus. That's not how it is. It is spiritual nourishment to our eternal souls. And it is a sense of service to the Lord. In John chapter 4, when they did come back, he said to his disciples, after having spoken with the woman, women, I have food to eat that you do not know about. And what is their thought? 
though. I know he did, wasn't carrying any food. Did somebody bring him a snack? They're trying to figure out what it is because when he says food, their one-track mind says what? Food. Right? And I know as it gets closer to the noon hour, some of you are starting to think he better stop saying food or I'm going to lose concentration. Stay with me. Jesus says what? Uh, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and accomplish his work. Wait a second. How is it, that, how is working on behalf of the Father going to feed your body? Jesus wasn't saying it was going to feed his body. What he was saying is, there's something more important than feeding the body. There's something more significant than the intake of food. There's, a, there's something more committedly that I've got to be involved in. And I, and I will tell you this. People, almost everybody that you look around and see in this room, everybody that you see driving around outside, every single one of them has a significant commitment to food. How do I know that? If they abandon food, how long will they last? They, they won't. And most of them, their commitment to food is such that it's with relative frequency. More than once a day. For some, even twice a day. No, normally we would say three times a day, but that's not taking into account what? Desserts and snacks, and then, and then people start to add things like brunch, combining lunch and, and, and dinner, and all, all and, and looking for meals. You know, as long as I eat five square meals a day, I'll be fine. Oh, that we had that sense when it comes to serving the Lord. More than three times a day, we find ways, means, opportunities to somehow lay hold of and ingest. Do we look for opportunities in the midst of every single day? Multiple opportunities that we might what? Serve God. Be used of Him. Live for Him. Oh, God, help us in these things. He said, it said, the Scripture says this in 2 Peter um, chapter 3. It says, look, the day, verse 10, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. The earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. What's it saying? Everything that you see, everything that you know, gone. And everything that's really been done, shown. Verse 11, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you be in lives of holiness and godliness? None of these things you can hold on to. None of these things you take with you. Even as Job said, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I shall return. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Verse 13 says, look, or verse, yeah, uh, we're waiting for the new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these things, be diligent to be found by him without spot and blemish in this world. And so what is my urging is this, God brought us at some, sense, some point to see everything is vain apart from Christ. And in Him is hope, in Him is righteousness, in Him is joy, in Him is peace, in Him is reconciliation, in, in Him is our satisfaction. And we came to know that. And often that zeal burns within us quite profoundly in those early days. We're ready to give up anything and everything. But then I feel sometimes as the years go by, 
And as we're battered by trials, as we face challenges, and as we live in this world, that our eyes begin to look a little lower instead of to the one who's seated at the right hand of God. The scripture reminds us of this in 1 John 2, 17. The world is passing away along with its desires. But listen, whoever does the will of God endures forever. I don't want you to miss me on this, and I don't want us to misunderstand. Wait a second. Brother Jason, you didn't say whoever has faith. You didn't say whoever believes. Isn't it that we're saved by faith? And again, I, I caution you. Be careful about saying you didn't say. And remember, I was reading the Bible. When I read the Bible, it's never wrong. Sometimes it says differently than our expectations because it's wanting us to know this. Those who are of faith, those who uh, have come to believe are united to Christ in such a profound and living way, given the Spirit of God in such a new and living way, so that they now what? Walk in newness of life. They are now zealous for good works, so that the Scripture can actually say and does, everything else is passing away, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. And I could ask you, and you might answer right, and who alone does the will of God? It is those of faith. It is those who believe. Because faith is working through love and produces these things. We do not look, as it says in 2 Corinthians 4, to the things that are seen, but the things unseen. The things that are seen are transient. The things um, that are unseen are eternal. Even I want to state this, and I don't want us to miss this. A few more verses, and then, and then we'll close this for the day. Listen, 2 Corinthians uh, verse ch chapter 5, verse 13 says this. If we're beside ourselves, it is for God. If we're in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ constraineth or controls us because we have concluded this. That one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, listen, that those who live no longer live for themselves. I don't know if I said that clear enough. Let me just repeat that one more time. Christ died so that we might live. And the kind of living that we live in Christ is a living that is no longer live for themselves. I mean, that is a strong statement, isn't it? And, and we've got to ask ourselves these questions all the time. Why am I doing this? And listen, if your answer to that question, why am I doing this? Why am I deciding this? Why am I acting this way? Why am I moving this way? If the answer is, for me, it's what I want. It's what makes me happy. You messed up. Because we don't live for ourselves. In the last week, I've, I've, I've spoken with about four or five different people uh, and, and then remembered other occasions where, where even this, this tendency, uh, uh, people can start to excuse ideas. For example, uh, living for yourselves. Yeah, let me finish it. You don't live for yourselves, but what? But for him who for their sake died and was raised. So why do we do what we do? We live for Christ. We do not live for ourselves. Here's the challenge. People will start to say, even say this, and you're going to hear this in Christian circles, and God help us. Someone will say, I really prayed about this. 
and I feel it's the right thing to do. You ask them, well, well who, is, who is benefited by this? Me? Who among those who really care for you, who among those who are walking in Christ and having eternal priorities in mind has counseled that? And what's the answer? Uh, but you know what will often be said? They'll step back and say, but I have a peace about this. Yeah, you do. Because you're doing what you want. That's why you have a peace about it. It's what you want. And so I'm getting ready to do what I want. Feel good about that. I have a peace about it. I like it. That's not how it works. The, the, the question, the, the answer is not whether or not you feel good about it, whether you have a peace about it. The question is this. Is this what honors Christ? Is this what Christ would have you do? Because you and I cannot live for ourselves. I'm going to just drive this point home with a few more verses. Listen, Romans 14, 7 and 8. For none of us, speaking to believers, none of us lives to himself. And, and you hear this kind of thing because people will say, you know, um, we've talked about it in the past. I need me time. You know, I, I, need to, uh, I need to discover myself. I need to find myself. No, you don't. You need to discard yourself and find Christ. You need to lay hold of Him and follow Him. It is not about us. We, are, we live in a world of self-design, self-decision, self-indulgence. And Jesus says, whoever would follow me, deny himself. Starts with denial. He goes on to say this. Uh, for uh, Still Romans 14, 8. For if we live, we live Lord. Why? If we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or die, listen, we are the Lord's. The way it's stated in 1 Corinthians uh, 6 is this. Verse 19 and 20. You are not your own. You're not your own. You have been bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. If I could drive this home, really drive this home to me and to you, you're not your own. You have no rights over your life. But I want to do this. I want to see this. I want to have this. I want to experience this. I want to do this. You are not your own. You belong to Him. And that list of silly things that you want to have and that you want to enjoy. Does everyone in the world have those things? Has everyone done those things? You think, think how often uh, the, the person who, who uh, has no legs and, and was injured or maimed w would sit there and say, you know, I just want, uh, I just long for the experience of, of, of walking. Yeah, they're not going to get that. In this life, the blind person might say, I just long to see uh, uh, colors and beauty and the way that you guys express it. I, 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 the deaf, I, I would long to hear the sound uh, uh, of beautiful music and rhythms played together I, and the sound of words and language. I would love to hear those. They're not going to. Those are what we call ordinary experiences that individuals are ultimately denied. And you and I put forward these temporal earthly experiences and say, I want that. Is that what most honors Christ? Is that what he would have you do? Because you are not your own. I am not my own. 1 Peter 4 says, those who belong to Christ so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. I'll end with this verse today. Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me.
and the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I tell you, this happens to be the beginning for many this week of spring break across America. Where what do people run after? These crazy experiences. Even at times, the, the, the Christ, young Christian might say to themselves, yeah, you know what, I, I'm going to walk with God and all these things, and I'm going to raise my family godly. But, you know, I'm only young once, and I want to make sure while I'm young, I do get the spring break experience. Is that right? They say it. Is that right before God? The whole point is this. You're not your own, but I want. But who are you? You're his. You should not be asking, what do you want? You should be saying, what does he want? What would he have me do? But that's hard. And it's difficult. It's full of self-denial. And I'll tell you this, the scriptures will indicate, and we'll look it up even a little more next week. It is in that sacrifice of the things of the flesh. It is in that self-denial and in serving your Savior that you'll actually find true satisfaction. You'll find true joy. And you will, by God's blessing, have experiences that the multitude of the world never knows the peace with God that we know, th know through our Lord Jesus Christ. To be able to look at our God at the end of each day, look up to him and look forward to the day where he might say, well done, my good and faithful servant. That we would strive to say, by the grace of God, by the working of the Spirit, I can live in part in a manner that's pleasing in the sight of God. We're not our own. So he says, listen, come you who are thirsty, come and buy. It's not about your money, not about your goods. It's not about these things of the world. It's about this factual reality. There is no true abiding satisfaction, nourishment, and delight apart from Christ. And in Christ, the enjoyment of those great riches are as we walk with him, as we serve him, as we give ourselves by the working of the Spirit to do the work to, of him who sent us into this world, uh, to not live for ourselves. And so I remind us just in this simple closing, I hope that you are thirsty and hungry for righteousness and that you would know that pursuing those things of this world they don't satisfy we are not our own we have been bought with a price let us glorify God in the body let's pray Lord God even as we close out this time it is with such um, such a struggle in that knowing the realities that we do still wage war against the flesh within us. Lord, we do still have these earthly needs for our bodies and practical desires, not all of which are sinful. But Lord, we, we need you to stir up within us by your word and spirit a, a greater spiritual priority where we can look at the things that are unseen, where we can fix our hearts upon you, where, God, we would learn by grace to live in self-denial and ask ourselves not what we want and what we desire and what pleases us, but what is it that you want? What do you desire? What pleases you? Oh, God, we thank you that you have given us, many of us who are here, hearts unlike that rich young ruler, that we've come to realize, what does it matter if we were to gain the whole world and forfeit our souls? Lord, let us not, as your people, let us not live as the world lives. Let us live for Christ, who gave himself for us, because he is worthy 
and we can do no other. In Jesus' name, amen.